In this episode of Christ and Culture, Ike Reeder takes a deep dive into Richard Niebuhr's five approaches to confronting the world. To get the most out of this lesson, you'll want to reference the visual chart in the accompanying slide presentation, a link to which can be found in the show notes. This chart references a spectrum of Christian views on cultural engagement with explanatory notes that Ike refers to throughout this lesson. And now, here's Ike. Here's where we are. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of looking at this, um, uh, this, this sort of structure that uh, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, wrote an entire book about called Christ and Culture in 1951. Uh, and this is the, uh, his distillation of what it means for Christians to engage in culture and the, uh, the different ways that Christians over, over millennia, over you know, a long, long time. I mean, literally he, using examples in the Bible from going all the way back to, all, to Old Testament, all the way up to current uh, events and everything else. And his neighbors working all this stuff. He's, he is a very, very a big thinker, if you will. So uh, he is bringing a lot to this. We're, we are not going to be able to delve fully into it. And in fact, we're going to spend a little more time on uh, Tim Keller's distillation of this. And I'll explain what, what that is in just a few moments. But what we do want to do, we do want to have an idea, at least of the, of the spectrum in our minds. And so that's what this is. That's why we put this up like this. This is a spectrum. This is a spectrum. The chart is trying to, if you, you know, yesterday or last Sunday when we were looking at it, I sort of listed them out in a definitive form. And here's some of the words that are, that are helpful for trying to remember which ones, which Christ, above, Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture and paradox and Christ transforming culture. So you've got, this is the, the, the Christ against culture. You could call the exclusivist if you will, uh, the Christ of culture, that would be a culturalist. They think that Christ is fully expressed in the cultures around it, and there is no right or wrong of those expressions, that it just is an expression. Um, it, if that sounds a little new agey, I mean, it does approach a spiritualism. We would talk about that as the difference theologically between imminence and transcendence, that Christ is imminent. You know what the word imminent means? Imminent means to be what? What's that? With us. Yeah, with us, or even more specifically, arising from within us. So it starts inside and moves out, as opposed to transcendent, which starts outside, which it resides above or beyond us, and we have to reach it in some way, right? So we do believe, I mean, we do believe that Christ lives within us if you are saved. But for someone who believes that truth is imminent, that means it is that truth is within. So find your, your truth, find your truth inside you. And you'll hear people say this, and I'm not saying this to try to slam on anybody, at, at least, and we will talk about why this might or might not be a valid truth claim. But I was reading uh, that somebody passed away, and it was from a celebrity family. It's not even important who it is. Um, and obviously, it was somebody that, that um, was leaving a uh, uh, li li living a uh, life of uh, gendered um, uh, flux. There, there was it was in flux, and and you know they're dealing with all those things, and those are very real situations that people have to deal with. But what the family said after the person passed away, and they passed away from disease from disease and illness, was you know so and so 
uh, they just, I'm just so proud of them because they just, they lived their truth, right? And so that's, I don't want to get into the gender side of it. It's tragic. Somebody died and, and by all accounts did not know Jesus. That's what's tragic. That's the most tragic part about that. Whether that person struggled with gender dysphoria or not is not the most tragic part. The most tragic part is that somebody died apart from Christ, okay? So remember that as you're dealing with the issues that surround gender and sexuality in our culture today, all right? But having said that, the phrase from the family is an, is an example of this idea of for what a Christian would say as, as a culturalist, is that, that, that all these cultures contain that the truth of Christ and it, or, or Christ is in all those cultures, and it just arises up from them, okay? So it's a hyper-spiritualism, tends towards a new age kind of perspective and all those kinds of things, and that truth is imminent. Truth is found first inside. Then you've got a synthesis who believes that history is preparation and we're moving forwards towards this sort of ultimate synthesis union of, of God and culture, and everything is slowly moving towards this ultimate point. The, the synthesis Christian in this environment, you could also, another good word that you can remember that will help you understand how this person's moving forward, this would also be a, a utopianist. They believe that we're moving towards a utopia of, you know, the, the, of the synthesis of God's truth and his expressions of it in natural law. Okay? And then you've got the paradox. This is the dualist that there's a struggle. This is not the utopianist. This is, uh, there will be a time when Christ comes and fulfills all his promises, um, but it won't happen until he comes. You won't achieve it through the working out of culture. You will only achieve it through the second coming of Christ. So the dualist sees these two things as intention with one another, if you will, all right? They're not necessarily a dystopianist, but they don't, they're definitely not utopianist. And, and I, I used to be the assistant editor for the, the number, the, the top, there is actually a top journal of utopian academic literature called Utopian Studies. And I was the assistant editor for it for two years when I was in grad school. So I've read a lot of these, okay? I'll move my hand for you, Lord, so you can take the picture. There you go. Get my hand right in the middle. <laughs> the bottom one is the conversionist. That means that the conversionist does not believe that these two things, are, are that Christ and culture are, are by nature working themselves together, but it does believe that the power of Christ can have a transformative effect on culture. And while it does not lead to perfection, it does lead to the you know, Machen sort of fertile soil for the gospel. And that's the reason that we have the call for it. So having said that, we can, now we can see them in this, in this sort of paradigm, all right? So you've got, these are, these are two, two sides of the equation. And you'll see there's a little line, there's a double line here and a double line here, okay? This one, Christ against culture, that Christians must make a radical break from their culture. On this side, Christ of culture, Christians find in Christ the high ideals for their cultural life and values. That this is that, and, and that Christ is 
fully assimilated into culture as it's as it's as it stands. Okay, not not that it's changing, but as it stands. So on these two sides, you've got the, those are the extreme views. Okay, and then you've got that there's a paradox, and and that there's a synthesis. You've got it on either one of these sides of the transformative vision in the middle. So the conversion or Christ, the transformer of culture, Christians should endeavor to convert and redeem all men's cultural life for the glory of God. So that's an important statement. Take a second before, you, before we just buzz on listening to Ike talk. Let me read that one more time. Christians should endeavor to convert... Right, if you stop there, just Christians should endeavor to convert. What would you say if, if you couldn't read any further? You would say Christians should endeavor to convert what? Convert souls. Souls, right? I mean, as from our background, that the first the phrase that comes after convert is not culture, it's souls. Okay. So while that's in the middle of this paradigm, that's what I want you to start thinking about. I don't want because this one sounds awesome. Like we want to convert and redeem all man's cultural life for the glory of God. Well, that you had that glory of God part on the end, and all of a sudden you've done what? You oh, you may be in catechism territory by that by now. But what is man's chief end? I see glory of God. That means this must be part of the first question of the catechism, right? So, I mean, that's, you need, I, I didn't make this chart. I don't know who made the chart. I just cribbed it off the internet, which is wonderful. People have done a lot of my work for me. And uh, the uh, reference, oh, well, this is, Jimmy Long made it in, con in Generating Hope. So well done, Jimmy. Jimmy, I give you full credit. I haven't read your book yet, but I'll go buy a copy this afternoon. Um, I have to say that since this is public. The, uh, the, uh, that man's cultural pursuits are created good but now infected by sin, so human culture needs redemption and restoration. So, I, I mean, I want you to think about that for a second. Just think about it. Process that statement for a minute. This, by the way, is very much where we, where we are. Christians live in the world, but this is, this is the paradox one, dualism, that culture is unchanging. Christians live in the world but are oblivious to it. They rest on tradition and faith while waiting for God's kingdom. This one is the basis for what we would call two kingdoms theory, that there is a worldly kingdom and a godly kingdom, and those two are not going to come together before God comes again. And so we should go about and do our work well and tell people about Jesus, but really and truly, culture's kind of going to hell in a handbasket anyway. All right? It's kind of the two kingdoms. I mean, that's... And, and, and I mean that with great respect for two kingdoms theorists because they really do mean go work hard, go be productive, go care for people through your work and your job. But the larger specs of culture in terms of like every, if you can maybe cause a culture to shift towards positive directions, but it's very temporary and the, the effects of sin will immediately once, once you remove any hand from it, any Christian hand from it, the effects of sin will immediately bring it back downhill, if you will. And then this one is that the culture, they're battling. That's that battling view. But this is the one I want you to focus on right now. Christians should endeavor to convert and redeem all man's cultural life for the glory of God. Man's cultural pursuits are created good, 
but now infected by sin. So human culture needs redemption and restoration. How does that sound to you? So, I mean, sounds, sounds great, right? I mean, sounds really good. You're like, is, he, is this a trick question? <laughs> what? No, yes. Did Tim Keller say that? Uh, you know, well, then the next question needs to be, and again, these are just evaluative questions. The next question needs to be, um, is can you, this is what I was asking, can you support that from scripture? That human culture needs redemption and restoration. Is that a phrase that is supportable from, from God's word? We could look at uh, when uh, God's people went to uh, Babylon. Okay. And, you know, I guess what God told them, the prophets told them what to do there. Well, they, they said, and, and, and what did they say to do in, in Babylon? Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city. You will find your dead. That's good. Um, Daniel, you guys... Go. You've got high positions in office now, and I mean Nebuchadnezzar became a Christian, and so and Babylon became a Christian nation, right? No. Make Babylon great again? Anyone? <laughs> good. I mean, I may get the hat made for that. Get T-shirts for the quarter. Make ba make Babylon great again. Um, the uh, <laughs> maybe a bad joke. Apologize. Um, but. We, we're supposed to, I mean, what, we, you know, you use the phrase, the welfare of the city, which is the way the ESV translate it. Um, just asking questions, is the welfare of the city, the, is that all equivalent to the redemption of the city? Or is it, well, if the city has <clears throat> better means of production and economic stability, it means that you, the Jews, my people in the city will also be relatively safe from privation and, and certain physical, you know, starvation, you know, whatever, or slavery or all those kinds of things. Is, is welfare equivalent to redemption? No, but it can lead to redemption. And, but it could lead to redemption. Okay, good. So, yeah, go ahead, Joel. The first part of that one bothers me more, I guess. Man's cultural pursuits are created good, but now affected by sin, which I read saying the only good culture was in the garden. Okay. So that's, I see that misleading. Man's cultural pursuits were pretty good, so he started thinking about good culture. Well, of course, I'm reading that right. There was only one good culture. And before sin came in. That moves. To infect us as a race. Okay. Is that an accurate reading of what is, anybody want to respond to Joel? See, the whole thing I've been doing in the last, like, nine weeks is giving you backgrounds to think about culture and everything else. Now... You got to start to evaluate where where do I fall, and which one of these are are biblical? How do we start to determine what our calling is in this culture, in the culture around us? Yeah. Do you want to respond to that, or, or well, a different I, thought? You know, I just I think the cultural mandate isn't necessarily contained within the Garden of Eden. It was a cultural mandate. It was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Mm -hmm. it you know, bring it under. Bring order. Um, bring order, and so you know, you, and, and we're still about trying to do that. I mean, there's all sorts of cultural institutions which are trying to bring to bring order and to to build things and to. Uh, I mean, you know, you talk about 
lot of those, and, and, and while um, some of the motivations behind them or within them um, are corrupted by sin, that doesn't negate the, the, um, the mandate to, to bring order and, um, and, and build a world that, is, that people can live in and, and sort of realize mm -hmm. the, what God had made them to do and the gifts that God has given them to, to, to employ. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's great. I completely agree with that, and I think it brings us to the two things. There were three three things popped into my head while you were making that comment, Ed. Um, that also refer back to to Joel's comment as well. Um, one of the things that I think we need to do is to look down down here on this line on the on the chart is uh, that this these these bold ones right here correlate with these two, with this one, and with these two, okay? So the left side, Christ against culture, and Christ and culture in paradox. If you look down here, it says these views see human culture as what? As basically bad. Sinful and evil, and they tend to, but they, they, they tend to think that literally everything after the tree is, 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 is terrible. Okay, this one on this side sees human culture as basically good. In other words, that while we as people sin, that the expressions that we can build are not necessarily sinful, even if they're created or built by a sinful people, all right? And, and they deny the full effects of the fall and teach uh, and recreate Christ into these cultural images, if you will. So these two see culture as inherently good, and these two see culture as inherently bad. Does that make sense? This one sees that culture, man's cultural pursuits are created as good in intention, even under the fall, but there's this thing called the noetic effects of the fall, which means what? Does anyone want to give a guess? That's one of those big theological terms, which means noetic, N-O-E-T-I-C, the noetic effect of the fall, which means that the, the fall and sin, it, it in fact taints everything, that the fall is not exclusive to Adam and Eve, nor was it exclusive only to the, the garden, but it affects, as, as we are all born into a sinful state, that means there's literally nothing we can do that will not have the effects of the fall. But it doesn't mean that the doing becomes wrong in and of itself. In other words, it means that the things we're called to do are good, but this is why it says they are, but they are infected by sin. So that person would argue, Joel, that yes, the only place that you can find a pure expression of these things would in fact be in the garden. Because it was the only place that the intent and the uh, impetus towards it were both untouched by sin at the time. Now, I personally believe that that is one of the reasons why we don't get a gigantic description of exactly how Adam and Eve went about building, quote-unquote, culture in the garden. 
Because God does, I don't believe that God wants us to look back at that and say, well, I did it the same way they did it. Why isn't it having the same impact here? I think it's something he wants us to explore and to take part in as human beings under the cultural mandate. But this position would argue that even though, there's a Latin phrase here, and I can't remember it. I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on it. But it means, it, 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 the, the translation is, abuse does not uh, disqualify our misuse. So, or, 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 pardon me, not misuse. Abuse does not disqualify use. In other words, just because somebody takes a thing we're supposed to do and abuses it, doesn't make the action itself wrong. It does believe abuse is wrong. Don't, don't misunderstand the Latin phrase. That's not a, it's not an argument for abuse or anything like that. But it's like, I mean, people, I mean, I, I mean I, I, I'm in a blended family. People can abuse marriage. People abuse relationships. That doesn't make marriage itself inherently wrong. It means that somebody abused a God-given uh, a gift, the gift of marriage. It doesn't make just because somebody abuses money doesn't make money itself wrong per se. Because somebody abuses the creative act doesn't mean we should not be creative. Does that make sense? So abuse does not cancel out use. And so this or this position is saying, even though we can't do it perfectly, we're still called to do it now. What I would, my contention with the way that this is phrased goes a little bit to what you and I were, what you were saying just a minute ago, Ed, which is that what my argument would be with, so human culture needs redemption and restoration. My argument would be that's a misapplication of the word redemption. Human culture can be an avenue towards opportunities of human redemption, but culture can't, is not, I don't, I don't believe, I per, this is my, behind my curtain mask, I don't believe culture is redeemable. Because culture is going to, I mean, we're, we're called to build this culture here in order to create avenues for the gospel. Not because the culture is going to last into eternity. That, that, the culture doesn't go on. The culture doesn't get redeemed. I want a, the people in the culture to be redeemed, and I want the culture to be amenable and to have avenues of that redemption. So, so is that to say essentially that culture is a reflection, not an entity in and of itself? That, that, that gets to what I, would, what I would argue, yes. That the culture is a reflection of belief systems. I mean, it is an entity in that it's tangible expressions. And you can deal with the tangible expressions. Or if you will, there are entities in the culture if you will. But even then, culture itself is not monolithic. And so, I mean, that's part of what we're, that was part of what we're dealing with is the, uh, is, is, the, is the interconnectivity of cultures. And in order to parse those out, I mean, it's one of the, one of the most difficult tasks that, that a social, I mean, that would be the task of a, a social anthropologist who would be studying those cultures to try to parse out what all those individual pieces are, all right? So, that doesn't mean, that doesn't call us not to engage in culture. It just calls us to recognize that culture is an avenue, not the end result. All right? Yeah. So could it be that culture can be influenced by redeemed people, but the goal is to get the people saved and 
cultures better. Don't they care about the poor and have hospitals and that kind of thing. Do you want to respond to that? Or kind am of I thing? getting off track? We can get back. No, 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 no. You're you're great. Well, you're I, great. I think it's more than it's probably more than just getting them saved. I mean, we're we're called to love people, even though we know a lot of them want to be saved. Mm-hmm. That's so, the, so I guess it's a great the, point, Mac. Bringing glory to God is, I guess, the ultimate. So, so you've got the act of conversion from what Connie's talking about, where somebody surrenders their life to Christ, makes a commitment to follow Christ, okay? It's an act of conversion. And then, historically, what's happened a lot of times in American evangelicalism is we've pushed for conversions and then when people what what some of you were nodding your heads a little bit what is what's the picture looked like over the last 50 years in American evangelicalism walking down the aisle you walk down the aisle say a prayer maybe it's at a church maybe it's at a crusade okay Not, nothing against the Billy Graham crusades or anything like that but what tended to happen? You walked down the aisle, you made your commitment, and then what? Nobody discipled you. Yeah, the, the next level of engagement either wasn't available or whatever. And, and again, to the credit of organizations like the Billy Graham Crusade um, and Harvest Ministries and those kinds of things, they actually now, when they come and do a crusade, they try to partner with local churches so that as soon as somebody, if somebody walks down that aisle at the big conferences and everything else, they don't just end up there. They take them, they introduce them to local churches, and they have local counselors follow up with them and people that volunteer to take them out to lunch and that kind of thing. And they try to build some of those follow-up mechanisms in place. But for a lot of American evangelicalism over the last 50 to 75 years, because well, over the last 100 years, because of the influence of revivalism, not a, not a right biblical understanding of revival, the way that, the way that Pastor Reader teaches it here, right? But revivalism, which is counting the number of conversions, is that people shift from this and say, well, th- this is the opposite side. Is It doesn't matter. It just matters if they say the prayer. They just got to say the prayer. And so we'll use anything we can to get them to say the prayer. That, act- that would definitely not fall in this central category. Which category would that fall in, Ed? Yeah. This would be on the left side. It could potentially be all the way over on the left side as it's antithetical. And it's just about souls coming to Jesus. Okay? And it completely ignores the engagement and the interaction with culture. But probably more on the paradox side. Go ahead. Uh, You know, it sort of seems to me that, like, you know, part of the whole, um, you talk about the first question of the catechism, you know, we're we're to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Um, You know, that, that doesn't mean just the heavenly realm and the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, God God created it, a world for us to live in and to enjoy and to steward and to take care of. And, you know, and, and all the cultural conversations about, you know, the protection of our natural resources and global warming and, and you know, the roles of institutions and how they, you know, all of these things, um, they are... Um, kind of a, a worldly expression of, like, how do we take care of this world that we have? Um, but 
But once those souls get saved, we have a world to live in, and we have the world to cultivate, and we have things to do, and mm-hmm. people to help. And, um, and, and to me, you know, that's also part of in, in, you know, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, this side of eternity, um, by, by taking care of what He's given us. And, and I, don't, I don't know if that... Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah, you're right on. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and what you what 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 you're expressing is that that is the opposite side of this this phrase that man's central pursuits are created good, but now infected by sin. In other words, instead so so when infected by sin, what do we as humans do? I mean, Romans 1 gives us a clear uh uh, outline of how far down the death spiral away from God we can go, but without using that to just go all the way to the perversions of culture and society and everything else, but just just stay up at the top. It just means that, I mean, in, in, in our sin, we're infected in a way that we do one major transference, and that is from the throne of our allegiance and where we are supposed to be uh, you know, gaining truth, we take God and we move God off that throne and we put what? Sure. We put ourselves on the throne. I mean, I, I really do agree with dad. And as he says, you know, there really are only two worldviews. There is, do you believe in a sovereign God or you believe in a sovereign self? And, and that, that there's really, I mean, there's a lot of different, I mean, there's a few different expressions of it over here um, that, that are some more right than others. And over here, there's a ton of different versions of it. But at the end of the day, you're either, you're either giving yourself to a sovereign God or you're putting the sovereign self on top of it. And so when that transference takes place, what happens is, is our actions, we, we are always trying to find justification for our actions. And so with exactly what Ed's talking about, we do it because we are going to worship the planet or because we want a better, uh, you know, sustainable life for our families and friends, which is not bad. But we put that on the throne. Or we, or, or we do it because it's the cool thing to do. We do it because our friends are doing it. And we're, uh, as the phrase is, as we talk about it a lot on Facebook, we're slacktivists. We're, you know, we, that's what the phrase came about about 10 years ago, is that we, we just, we, we promote it via our social medias and everything else. And we end up in those spots. But, we're, but it's not that those, the impetus for those things is bad. It's that because without God to put them in right perspective, we don't do them the right way. Or we don't do them for the right end, ultimately. All right? But that's a good point. It doesn't mean, we want to take those things and we want to call them hippies or, or call these you know, peop, call people names and everything else. It's a lot harder to dig down and actually see if there is a God-given expression at the root of it that's been infected by the sin and by switching out the self for God on the, on the mechanism of uh, rationality, if you will, or, ra- or reason, if you will, okay? Now, let me just, we're, we're going to make this a little bit easier. We're going to wrap up right now because we started a little early and, and I took more time even than normal. So here's what Keller does. And this is 
what, what, is, what, what I think is really helpful for us. You've engaged the hard part. Well done. If you've been sitting here going, I kind of get, I don't get it. I don't know if I get it. Maybe get it. Um, it's okay. Lots of people don't. But you engage the tough part. This was that learning where the teacher like puts the really hard thing first and then comes in later and says, here's an easier way to understand this. Um, Keller has done a great service to us uh, in this respect. And there's a lot of other writers doing this. And I'm, we're going to go through several more as we keep working through these next few weeks, finishing up the quarter. What Keller's done is he has taken those four views and he's taken the one that was on that far uh, right-hand side for me, left-hand side for you. That was the Christian should be totally divorced from culture, period. And he's just gotten rid of that one because he's like, that's just really not, we just, we can't find that. I mean, that's a, that's a misapplication of the, the concept of Israel as a nation is what, if I can give it a quick dismissal, it's a misapplication of understanding Israel as a separate nation, as a literal city-state in the Old Testament, okay? And a misapplication of the ceremonial law and other things in that regard. So that one's gone. And so what he does is he takes these and he doesn't put them in a continuum. He says, there's these four things. And if anything, they're kind of in a little box. And we'll show you what that box is next week. But he says, we've got the transformationalist, which is obviously kind of the one we've been talking about for the last few minutes. And then we've got the relevantist. Somebody who really, really wants to make the gospel relevant to the culture. I mean, you can think about that for a little bit and make your own conclusions. So much so that they might end up sacrificing more of the gospel for culture than culture for gospel. Does that, see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? And then you've got the counterculturalists. And this is the person that really wants to show that the gospel runs counter to the culture. The sinful effects of the fall have so permeated culture that the gospel, if you live a life of the gospel, you should be so counter to the culture that nobody will be able to mistake that you're a Christian, right? Magnus gets, these get into a little bit to what you were asking before class started. And then you've got a, the two kingdoms view, which is that, that, that when Christ comes, it's all gonna change anyway. So really what we need to do is go about our business and be in our families and disciple our families and do a good job at work. And then that, that should be enough to be on your plate as it is, okay? And we're gonna get into these four. I'm gonna give you a definition for all four of these. As you'll see, uh, it is, you do have the slides. So you are, don't, don't, don't start taking pictures because you do have the slides of all these. Uh, Mary Claire sent them out. So it's very easy for you to go through and you'll have a little definition for each one. And then we'll finish up by looking at the Lord's Prayer next week, okay? So having said that, um, let, me just, let me just give you this. Uh, um, let me finish with giving you this uh, uh, assignment, if you will, all right? Um, this week, what I want you to do is I want you to um, write for yourself. These assignments are getting bigger. Okay, by the end of this, you're going to do a five-page paper. <laughs> and then you get seminary credit for this class. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, wish we could do that. No, what I want you to do is I want you to think, I want you to go home. I don't want you to write anything down. You're fine. Go home, and I want you to uh, start a dialogue with your family. And you, if, you're, if, if this has been interesting at all, you may have already started doing this, and that's fine. But if you haven't, 
then start a dialogue with your family and ask a question. Start asking these questions. Um, do I think, these, these two questions that I want you to start asking, am I optimistic or pessimistic about the possibility that my culture around me can change? Am I optimistic or am I pessimistic? Now don't just say like, man, I don't think it's gonna change. I think it's gonna change. Have a dot, start talking to, to your family. That it can change, that it, it can't, can the possibility of change, the possibility of change. Now, also remember while you're answering that question that I have given you multiple types of culture. And so this is not just asking, because immediately our minds go to, we want to change that darn American culture. Like it's getting away from it. Start with your family. Can your family culture change? Can your culture change? Your personal culture change? Can your family culture change? Change for the better. Ch change, change are, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Can it change, period? Or, because the opposite side of that is, that it is a monolithic entity that just sort of exists as the sum of parts. And that there literally is almost no way that I can change enough parts to, to, to affect change in any of the cultures that I'm engaged in. My family culture, my work culture, my church culture, my, my national, my local culture, my national culture. See, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. In other words, okay? The second question that you need to ask is, is the current culture, and this is asking for the larger culture around us, is it redeemable and full of common grace, or is it fundamentally fallen and lacking in common grace? Those are a lot of words, but you can basically parse that down to, does the culture that I'm in evidence characteristics of sort of redemption, or does it evidence characteristics of pushing people away from redemption? In other words, is it a road into or a road out of Jerusalem right now? Is the current culture that assessment? And you can do multiple assessments. Local culture, national culture, family culture. Again, these are nested in one another. I want you to start that dialogue, and when you come back next week, your answers to that will tell you which one of the four in Keller's paradigm you fall into the category. So we're going to actually give you your answers first and tell you what you are based on your answers before I tell you exactly what all four of those entail. <laughs>